Hey, good to see you guys today. So glad that you're joining us online. And uh, if this is your first time, I'm Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church in Norton Campus. And glad you jumped on to check things out. Uh, what an opportunity it is to come to you every week like this. And so God's doing some neat things. Hopefully you had a good week. We, last week, started a brand new conversation. And I said last week is a very important conversation. A conversation that is about the gospel. And I said this last week. I said last week to you that I felt like this conversation was important because some of you would call yourself Christ followers. And this conversation is important because... If you were honest, you're more exhausted in your faith than you are excited. Like you're more crushed by the duty of your devotion than you are somehow delighted by the gift of grace. And this conversation about the gospel is for you, right? There's others of you, you've been hurt by a church. And I said that chances are that maybe you've been hurt by a church because somewhere along the way they kind of got this distorted, this whole conversation. And so this conversation's for you. And, and then there's others of you, if, if I'm honest, you're resistant to Christianity, and I'm so glad you're listening. I really am. And this conversation's for you, because I want to make sure you know what it is you're resisting or rejecting. And I would say this, chances are that uh, it might not be what you thought. And so this conversation's for you. And, and I want to say this. I want you to know that all those things are true, and all those things are correct. But to be honest with you, uh, this week and the previous weeks has just been a reminder of another reason this conversation that we're having is so important. Uh, can I just say it this way? Many people, even including some followers of Jesus, have misplaced their hope. And because they've misplaced their hope, it's led many people to have misproportioned passions, misaligned priorities. And this conversation is important because I want to say it this way. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. It's the hope for our nation. It's the hope for our communities. It's the hope for our marriages. It's the hope for our families and everything else in between. The fact of the matter is what we're talking about is the most beautiful, robust, power-filled, life-changing truth there is, superseding any philosophy of life, any human ideology, any political platform, party, or even personality. And when the church and those who align their life with King Jesus realize that, you know what it does? It informs my passions. It informs my priorities. And it informs my perspective. Nothing that I could talk about seems more important right now at this moment than the good news of God for a broken world that's looking for hope. And so we're talking about the gospel. And here's what we said last week, and I want to go somewhere really important this week. We said gospel just means good news. So when you look at the Bible, the gospel is God's good news. And here's what we said it is that starts this way, God loves me. God loves me. That's good news. Maybe you didn't know that. God loves you. That's how it starts, for God so loved the world. But we said this, I need to recognize I'm a sinner. God loves me. I'm a sinner. And when I look at the story, I realize I don't have to convince a lot of people of that. But when I understand the gospel, I realize that God loves me. I'm a sinner and that Jesus died for me while I was a sinner. Not when I got all cleaned up. Not when I started coming to church. Not when I 
got my addiction taken care of. He died for me. He died for my sin while I was still a sinner. We said this, the gospel says Jesus died, but he was buried and he's alive and he's coming back. And when I say yes to Jesus, I am forgiven of my sin. I'm saved into the family of God and it is forever. And why is that important? In this series, and this is the way we ended last week, in this series, I want some of you to get that for the first time. I want you to get it. Like for some of you, like I've never said yes to Jesus. And you know what? I want you to get it. You can stop this video right now and simply have a conversation with God and say, God, I believe you love me. I know I'm a sinner and I believe Jesus died for me in my place. And I believe he's alive and he's coming back. And I wanna say yes to him as the savior of my sin. I wanna say yes to him as the leader of my life. And if you have that conversation with God, I'd love to hear from you. Email me, call the office. But I want many of you to get it for the first time. But you know, I wanna go beyond that because the gospel is not just God's get out of hell plan, right? It's way more than that. We said it this way in this book that we're basing this series off of, J.D. Greer puts it this way, that the gospel is not just the diving board that we jump into Christianity, but it's the whole swimming pool, right? It's not the ABCs, but it's the A to Z. And so that's why I want you to grow in it. I would say it this way, I want you to grow in it all the time. That's why we're doing this series. The gospel is something that we grow in. The grace of the gospel. Why do I want you to grow in it? Because I want you to give it away. I want you and I and us as a campus to spend the rest of our life growing in the gospel so that we spend the rest of our time giving it away. It'll transform our community, transform our families, transform our marriages. Now, now, this reality is why a guy named Jury Bridges, he's an author, said this, that you and I need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That's interesting. That's worth writing down somewhere. Preach the gospel to ourselves every day. It's why in his book, J.D. Greer does something interesting that we're going to spend the next four weeks kind of tearing apart. He has in his book, and we've made it available on our app, you can go to our website, but you can get the book for $10. We have it at a discount rate, right? But he does this thing called the gospel prayer. And in this gospel prayer, he simply says this, it's a prayer that you and I can pray every day. It says this, in Christ, there's nothing I can do that would make you love me more. Nothing I have done that makes you love me less. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. As you've been to me, so I'll be to others. As I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross, and I'll measure your power by the resurrection. Now, here's what I want to do just for a few brief moments today, okay? I just want to take the first part of this prayer, tear it apart, because we want to grow in the gospel. And here's what he says. He says, in Christ, there's nothing I can do that would make you love me more, and nothing I have done that makes you love me less. Now guys, this is the gospel, and this part of the gospel gets to the heart of three, get your pens ready, three fundamental questions if we're gonna grow in the gospel. First is this, I want you to write this down somewhere. It's the question of acceptance. And here's how that question goes. What does God think of me? What does God think of me? Now, now let's step back from that a second. You ever wonder what somebody thinks about you? You're, of course you have. 
We do all the time, <laughs> right? We, we do all the time, right? We wonder what people are thinking. It starts early, right? I mean, do you remember in, in grade school, do you remember passing the note? You know what the note said? Come on, <laughs> you can admit it. The note said, do you like me? And then circle one, right? Yes or no? Like, like I passed the note, right? I mean, there was a girl, first grade. Her name was Carrie. She actually lived right down the street from me, right? And I, I passed the note. In fact, she lived across the street. And underneath the street, there was a crick that ran, right? In Pennsylvania, we call them cricks, right? And we literally would pass notes and they would go through there and under the street, through the pipe, right? Pass notes, right? And I so desperately wanted her to like me. I wanted to be accepted by her. I wanted to know that I was okay with her because if I knew I was okay with her, that she liked me, that she circles yes on the note, then I would be okay with me. And so you know what I would do? Stay with me on this. I'd do all kinds of things so that she'd be okay with me. I'd want to impress her as much as a first grader can, right? right? I'd want to impress her. I'd want her to be okay with me. Why? Because I want it to be accepted by her. The fact is, this does not stop in the first grade. We all have this deep-seated need to know we're okay, to be accepted by a person or people outside of us. And the fact is, we'll do a lot of things to make sure we're okay. There's something inside of us that needs to be okay with us. And so in order to be okay with us, I gotta be accepted by you. And so I'll do whatever. This is what drives, this is what drives you in high school. You want to be accepted by a certain group. Maybe it's the athletes. Maybe it's the smart kids. Maybe it's the pretty girls. Maybe it's the popular crowd. Or maybe it's the crowd that's all anti all those crowds. That's a group too. But I gotta be accepted by a group. And so you know what I'll do? I, because when I'm accepted by that group, then I'll be okay with me. And so I'll do what I need to do to be accepted by that group. Let me, if you're a high school student listening to this, let me just tell you something. That doesn't end in high school. Literally, it goes right into adulthood. <laughs> because as adults, I gotta be accepted, right? This is what drives men and women somehow to have this need to be accepted by the successful people, <clears throat> to be recognized as important, to somehow fit in with the, the materialistic or the wealthy crowd. So I'll do whatever it takes to be okay, right? We have this need to be accepted. Here's the question though. The question for today is, what happens? When that question turns to God, what does God think of me? I dare you to pause this for a minute and just answer that. <laughs> what do you think God thinks of you today? For a lot of us, the answer to that question is solely based on what we've done this last week. Maybe that's how you're answering the question right now. That's why in his book, Gospel, I love what the author says. He says this, how does God feel about you right now? See if you can't relate with him. How do you and I determine that? Do you base your answer on what kind of week you've had? How consistent your quiet time has been? Whether or not you've been nice to your kids? He says, for many years, qualifications like that drove my response, and here's how it goes. See if you can't relate with him in this. If I had a good week, like a real, ready, Christian week, he says this, I'd feel really close to God. When Sunday came around, I would feel like lifting my head and, well, maybe even my hands in worship. 
almost as if to say, God, I'm here. <laughs> and I know you're excited about seeing me this week too. He, he said, if I had a stellar week, a stellar Christian week, I loved being in God's presence. And I was pretty sure God was stoked about having me there too. <laughs> but the opposite was true also. If I had not done a good job at being a real Christian, I felt pretty distant from God. If I had fallen to some temptations, been a jerk to my wife, dodged easy opportunities to share Christ, if I was stingy with my money, if I forgot to recycle, kicked my dog, he says this, well, on those weeks, I felt like God wanted nothing to do with me. When I came to church, I had no desire to lift my soul to God. I was pretty sure he didn't want to see me either. I could almost feel his displeasure. It's interesting, isn't it? And if we're honest, that is the way a lot of us think and feel about God. And the reason for that is because maybe we haven't fully embraced, or I would use this word, experienced the truth that is the gospel. And that's why the first part of this gospel prayer was so important where he said, in Christ, there's nothing I can do that would make you love me more. It's interesting. And there's nothing I've done that makes you love me less. That's the gospel. Let that sink in for a minute. How can that be? Well, let me tell you how it can be. It can be because of what God says. Let me show you a verse. Get your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians 5. Just keep it open there. We're gonna keep going back there. But I want you to go to the last verse, 2 Corinthians 5. And I wanna show you what it says. It says, God, so it's his idea, made him, that's Jesus, by the way. So God made him, Jesus, who had no sin. Jesus never did anything wrong. It wasn't that he didn't do anything, but Jesus is righteous. It's not just he does righteous things, he is righteous. He made the righteous one to be, who had no sin, to be sin for us. We don't just sin, we are sinners. We sin because we're sinners. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Did you get this? This was God's idea. And here's what this passage is saying. Jesus took on all the things about me that make me unacceptable to God. My sin. I'm a sinner. And when I say yes to him, don't miss this, he gives me all the things about him that makes him completely acceptable to God. Guys, this is gospel acceptance. I want you to write this down. We'll throw it on the slide for you. I want you to write it down somewhere. But gospel acceptance is this. In Christ, my acceptance by God is based on what Jesus did for me and not what I do for God. Woo! Man, that is powerful. Here's what it means. When you and I say yes to Jesus, you are in Christ. Key phrase. We're going to come back to it. And in Christ, God looks at you regardless of your situation, and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Just let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> when I say yes to Jesus, he looks at me, and he sees the righteousness of Christ. I, I was gonna use an illustration, but you'll be glad I didn't. The illustration, because I've used it before, <clears throat> is if I had worn a black shirt, right? And that black shirt represented not just the sin that I do, but fact that I am a sinner. It identifies me, I'm a sinner. Imagine I had a black shirt. The fact is Jesus is righteous. 
So therefore, we can kind of depict him with a white shirt. Here's what that passage is saying, and here's why you're glad I didn't do the illustration. It literally is me taking off my black shirt, right? And handing it to Jesus. That's why he went to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. But here's where, here's where it gets really interesting. He took my sin. Sometimes we stop there. Do you know what he does? He gives me his white shirt. <laughs> That's what uh, theologians call gift righteousness. He gifts me his righteousness. Like I, when God sees me, he sees me wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. Now my life is hidden in Christ. When it's, it's what some theologians call the great exchange. I gave him my sin, he gave me his righteousness. Another big word for you, you can write this down somewhere, is justification. I am declared righteous by a holy God. Now here's key, not because he's soft on sin. Justification is not just as if I never sinned. Justification is because I did sin. It's not because God is, it's, he's not letting me off the hook. Justification is all about Jesus was on the hook for my sin. You see, he was my substitute. These are deep theological truths. These are deep truths of the gospel that, that I am justified because he took my place. But he didn't just take my place. He gives me his righteousness. He gives me everything that makes him acceptable in God's eyes. Look at Romans 8, New Living Translation. I love this. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Law of Moses, unable to save us, right? Keeping the law, what I do, because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did, that's the key, not what we do, what he did, what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Why did he do that? The end of that chapter says it was his love that nothing can separate us from his love. Here, here, here's, here's the key. For some of you, this is gonna be transforming. God's acceptance of me is not based on what I do or don't do, but it is based on what Jesus did. And now God sees me on the basis of what Jesus did. That's the gospel. Answer me out loud if you, if you feel so inclined. That's good news, anybody agree? Like that's really good news. That's the gospel. In Christ we're justified. In Christ we're accepted. Which is directly tied to a second really, really important question. I should write this down somewhere. It's the question of identity. <laughs> and that question goes like this, well who do you think you are? You ever had somebody ask you that? Hey man, who do you think you are? Like first time I was ever asked that. Nobody ever asked me that. I remember I was in junior high. <laughs> like, like my first day of junior high, like I was a little chubby kid in junior high and I was trying to figure out my locker. Like, you ever had that experience? Like I had tried like 52 times, I could not get the thing open. And I remember a whole posse of guys were coming down the hall. Led, I remember his name, like, like yesterday, led by Johnny Miller. <laughs> and he shoved me against my locker, which I couldn't open. I was hoping it would unlock it, you know? 
and he looked at me and he said, hey man, who do you think you are? No one had ever asked me that before. I'm like, wow. Now, Johnny was not looking for a philosophical answer to his question because he challenged me to a fight that night, right? But, but the question is a key question because around middle school, we start to try to figure out who we are. And through middle school and high school, we start to create an identity for ourselves that is directly tied to being accepted. But, but here's what's interesting. We, we realize something pretty quick that we, we lose that identity. It gets lost in the next phase of life. When you leave high school, all of a sudden that identity you created in high school, you just lost somewhere, right? Doesn't it? All of a sudden you're married and you got kids and you're driving a minivan, right? And all of a sudden it's like, well, who am I? And then you go through that whole thing again about your 40s, 45, somewhere in there. And then you get to 80 and you're like, well, it's not who am I, but who, who was I, right? You start to look back on your life. See, your answer to that question is about identity. Who do you think you are? And for most of us, who we think we are is directly tied to what we've done, what we're doing, or what we'll declare that we're gonna do. And for some of us, we declare things that we're gonna do that probably we already know we can't do. Here, here's what I mean by that. For some of us, who do you think you are? What we do is we validate and vindicate ourselves and we answer that question, who do I think I am? And we answer it by what it is that we do for a living. I'm a plumber, I'm a lawyer, I'm a teacher, I'm a stay-at-home mom, that's, that's what I do. That's, my identity is wrapped up in what gets me validation. It's what I do for a living. For others of us, we answer it by our accomplishments. Who do you think you are? Well, I'm the state champ of wrestling, or I'm the Miss America runner-up, right? You know, who I am is what I've accomplished, right? Or for others of us, it's, it's who do you think you are? And so we answer it kind of, it's a culmination of other people's evaluation of us. So what other people have said about us is who we are, right? So, we, so my parents used to say, well, you'll never amount to anything, so I'm a failure, right? It's interesting. Like how you answer that question. Some of us, who do you think you are? Well, we would answer by what we own. You know, I'm the guy who owns this and that. How you answer that question is directly tied to your identity. And here's the deal. If, if I answer it that way, and if my identity is directly tied to either my accomplishments or what I do for a living, I'm in a crisis when those things get jeopardized. All of a sudden, I'm crushed. And see, that's where the gospel comes in because I am accepted by God because of the great exchange. And now, ready? I am who he declares me to be. Let me show you what I mean. Go back to 2 Corinthians 5. Let me show you this. For, this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5. For Christ's love compels us. We're gonna come back to that. Because we're convinced, here's the gospel, that one died for all, and therefore all died. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now here's the part I wanna lean into. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That's how we sometimes answer that, who do you think you are? We answer that from a worldly point of view sometimes, right? We don't do that anymore when we're in Christ. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we don't do that any longer. Therefore, here we go, if anyone is, what? Say the two words out loud, in Christ. The new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. This is gospel identity, guys. 
I want you to write it down this way. In Christ, I am who God declares me to be, not who Satan accuses me of being. That's key. I am in Christ who God declares me to be. And let me clear something up. You are either in Christ or you're not in Christ. There is no in between. I just wanna make sure you hear me say it. I wanna say it lovingly. I'm in Christ when I say yes to Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And you are either in Christ or not in Christ. And see, for those who are in Christ, the gospel is what identifies me. Some 140 times in the New Testament, this terminology in Christ is used. In the book of Ephesians alone, about 40 times, the writer uses it, his name's Paul. In, in, in Ephesians alone, he says, in Christ, I, I am who God declares me to be. And in Ephesians, you read it sometime this week, he says these things, he says, in Christ, I am a treasured possession of God. You ever think of yourself that way? That's God declaring you are his treasured possession. In Christ, I am God's trophy of grace. In Christ, I am a masterpiece in God's hand. Ephesians 2.10. In Christ, Ephesians 1, I am an adopted child in God's family. In Christ, I am, Ephesians 2, a citizen of God's new kingdom community. In Christ, I am a member of God's body. The reason this is so important is that Satan, I don't know if you knew this or not, he is in the New Testament called the accuser, did you know this, of the brethren. And his MO is this, he wants you to forget who God declares you to be. And he wants to accuse you on the basis of what you've done or not done. And he wants that to somehow replace the identity that God gives you. You're saying, Dan, help me understand that. Well. Let's look at the life of Jesus. We already said it, our acceptance is based on what Jesus has done. Now God, when he looks at me in Christ, he sees Jesus. Would you remember what happened to Jesus? Matthew three, talking about Jesus when he was baptized, he goes down, he's baptized, he went up out of the water, verse 16, at that moment, heaven's open. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning on him. This is so interesting to me. Verse 17, then a voice from heaven, God the Father, right? This is what? My son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is God declaring, this is my son. I love him. With him I am well pleased. What's interesting about this to me is, do you know the very next thing that happened in the narrative of Jesus, in the story of Jesus? Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, same Jesus that God just declared. This is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter, that Satan, came to him, and what does he say to him? He directly attacks what God declared over him. If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. It's about what you're gonna do. It's not what he declared. Verse six, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Satan's MO is to somehow get our attention off of who we are in Christ. That's what he wants to do. 
Satan wants me to base my identity not off of God's declaration over me, but based on what I do or don't do. And for some of us, that leads to deep shame, guilt, and regret. For others of us, unfortunately, it leads to an underscore self-righteousness and a pride. But the gospel is the reminder, and it reminds me of who I am. You ever watch, I, I watched this movie with my wife. I think it's called The Help. And I think it's contextually somehow uh, based out of in the 1960s. And I'll get some of the details wrong, but the, the point will, will, will make a difference. Uh, these families had uh, nannies, and they were black women who were nannies for these white families. It was during civil rights and all that. And some of these white families uh, that were depicted in the movie, they, they were so busy trying to get ahead, be accepted, all those kind of things, status. Uh, that, that they just weren't really good parents. And I remember one family in particular where th th there were times when they would just kind of dismiss the kids, where they would ignore the kids, where they would say some things that weren't very nice to the kids. And I remember this little girl in, in the movie, in, in a certain scene, and her nanny, one of those black ladies who was a nanny, would pick her up and constantly whisper in her ear, and she would say this. She said, you is smart. You is kind. You is important. Almost as if to say, I don't care what else everybody else is saying or not saying around you. I want to whisper what's true in your ear. You is kind. You is smart. You is important. Can I just say this? <clears throat> that the Spirit of God is our helper. And he's whispering the gospel in our ear. And here's what he's saying. You are not who they say you are. You're not even always who you say you are. And you sure as shooting aren't who Satan accuses you of being. You are who God says you are. You're a trophy of grace in Christ, a treasured possession, an adopted child with an invitation to the table of the Father. You're a member of his new kingdom community, a part of his body. You see, my identity is directly tied to my acceptance. The gospel's powerful, guys. Can you see why it's important for us to preach it to ourselves every day? Why is all that important? Well, I want to kind of land here because we're going to pick it up here in the weeks to come. Because I think it's tied to the third question. And I think the third question is simply this. It's a question of motivation. I want you to write that down somewhere. It's a question of motivation. What does that question say? It's, it's simply this. Why in the world do you do what you do? I'd love for you to just be honest about this, particularly if you're somebody who would call yourself a Christ follower. Can I ask you this? Why do you give? Why do you pray? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you share your faith? Why is it that you help your neighbor? Why do you serve in children's ministry? Why do you go visit the sick and encourage the lonely? Can I ask you this? Why do you run from temptation and sin? Why? You see, it's the question of motivation, and here's what gospel motivation says. 
Gospel motivation is, says this, that in Christ, I want you to write it down, my devotion and obedience are responses to being accepted by God, not a way of achieving acceptance from God. Wow. That turns the tables for many of us on our Christian experience. You see, the gospel starts with acceptance that comes because of what Jesus did, not what I do. And right with that is an identity that I am who God declares me to be. And so what happens is because I've been accepted by God and I am declared to be who he says I am, devotion, surrender, worship, and obedience flow from that. I live the rest of my life from a verdict. That's drastically different than religion, which some of you are trapped in. Religion says this, that your surrender, your obedience, and your devotion is somehow an effort to achieve from God acceptance. And you're spending your entire Christian experience living for a verdict from God. And the gospel frees us. Many people are afraid, well, doesn't that free people to do whatever they want? No. You know what I think it does? I think it only raises the bar. Guys, think about it. Isn't this what Jesus did? Do you remember John 8? Do you remember the story? They drug out in front of Jesus a woman who was literally caught in adultery. Do you remember that? Read the story. All these men picked up stones and they're like wanting Jesus to tell them to go ahead and stone her because that's what the Old Testament law said, certainly, right? She was caught in the act. You remember Jesus in this powerful story, he bent down and he wrote in the dirt. And he simply said this, go ahead, but just do me this favor. Let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. Sobering, they drop their stones one by one, right? And they walk away until the only one who had no sin, Jesus, is left there with the one who's caught in her sin, the woman. And do you remember what he said? He looked at her and he said, imagine this moment, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. He first pronounced on her acceptance and no condemnation. And he said, that's the power to leave your life of sin. How could he do that? How, how could he do that? Well, he knew that in a few days, he would literally take the punishment that she was deserving of. And the one who took the punishment could gift her with something she couldn't earn. Do you remember in Luke 19? Do you remember in Luke 19, there was this little short dude? Some of you grew in church, you know this song, like, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Remember that whole thing? Yeah, he was a tax collector, wealthy. Wealthy because he probably ripped a bunch of people off. He worked for the Roman government. How could you, right? Jesus coming to town, Jericho. Zacchaeus climbs up the tree, remember that? Probably was a good metaphor for his life. 
because he had worked really hard to get as much as he could, but he found himself up a tree. <laughs> Jesus came by. Do you remember? I think sometimes the little song gets it wrong. You come down. I don't think that's what Jesus said. He said, kids, come, come down. I gotta go to your house. You know what that was a sign of in their culture? Acceptance. He looks at Zacchaeus, the one whose life is literally up a tree, and says, I want you to come down out of that tree, and I want to go to your home with you. Oh, Jesus took it on the chin from the religious people. <laughs> You're eating with sinners and these people. And... But he went to Zacchaeus' home, a sign of acceptance. Do you remember Zacchaeus' response? His response wasn't, well, okay, Jesus, and now what do I got to do? I got to give a tithe? Do you remember his response? In his book, The Gospel, J.D. Greer calls it giddy generosity. He begins to pay back those that he ripped off and he begins to give even more. Four times, he just gives over and over. He's like, I can't give enough. He's like, Jesus, I just kinda, what drove that kind of response? Guilt didn't. Grace did. Write this down somewhere. Grace produces what guilt never can. And when the gospel grows in my life, it leads to a response. A response that guilt can never produce. You see, that's why I want some of you to get it for the first time. If you've never said yes to Jesus, God loves you. Right there where you're watching this, God loves you. Jesus died for you and he's alive. And you can say yes to him today. For some of you, you would say, I am a follower of Christ, but somewhere along the way, you stop preaching the gospel to yourself. And you think somehow God's frustrated, that God's mad, he's distant. And you forgot that your acceptance is based on what Jesus did. And your identity is what God says about you. And that literally when you get those things in the right order, the rest of your life of devotion and worship and surrender becomes a response to that. You know what happens? <laughs> when you get those things right, all of a sudden you begin to extend and give that away to your wife, to your kids, to your husband, to your coworkers, to your neighbors. That's the gospel. So God, help us to grow in the grace of the gospel. God, I am so thankful that in Christ, in Christ, that I am loved and accepted by you. And I'm gonna ask you as you're praying with me to simply pray this part of the prayer right now. You do it. In Christ, God, I believe there is nothing I can do that would make you love me more. And there's nothing that I have done that makes you love me less. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.